Welcome back to Brian Kabatek, Sean Karnicki, and Kabatek LLP talking about important cases that affect the plaintiff's law practice. And we're going to go over a few interesting cases today. We're going to start with a California Supreme Court decision called Nguni Wardeni. I didn't make that up. Uh, that involves employers' duties with respect to a payroll company. Then we're going to contrast that with a case called Vasquez versus San Miguel Produce. Move on to a case called Sunrise Financial, which involves uh, 170.6, and then to Fernandez versus uh, Alexander and the importance of an expert declaration in opposition to a motion for summary judgment. Then we're going to move over to the Ninth Circuit and talk about a case called Dachauer versus NBTY and federal preemption under the Federal Food, Drug, and uh, Cosmetics Act. And finally, we have a bonus at the end today. Sean Karnakian is going to talk about Kohler versus Superior Court and the right to repair. So let's just jump right into it, Sean. Let's first talk about the Goody Wardenay case. That's a California Supreme Court case. Uh, this was a February 7th, 2019 decision from the California Supreme Court led by the Chief Justice Cantil uh, Sakuye. She wrote on behalf of a unanimous court involving uh, an issue regarding employment and a payroll company. Now, I'll start off by saying that the California Supreme Court has, in a very interesting turn of events, been extremely pro-employee over the course of the last five or six years. And a number of decisions that have come out from the California Supreme Court favoring employees' rights and protecting employees under the labor code. And really, in a time when we see so much contraction of plaintiffs' rights uh, in this country and to some extent in California, um, the California Supreme Court has expanded the rights of employees uh, until now. So we get to this Guni Wardenay case, and I'm not making that name up. That really is the name of the case. And the issue here were um, wage and hour violations that had occurred uh, at this particular employer. And the employer itself uh, was named as a defendant in the original case. And the employer uh had used a payroll service like most companies in modern America do today. And the payroll service that they contracted with was ADP, which is probably uh, the largest, uh, if not one of the largest in the entire country. And ADP had been contracted to provide wages. And the interesting theory that had been raised here by the plaintiff employee in Guni Wardene was, I just like saying that name over and over Clearly. and over again. Clearly. Say it I'm one more so time. Proud just get it out. Guni Wardene. Because there I'm so go. proud of the fact that I actually can pronounce it. No one will ever forget the name of this case now. Thank you. And although I really think in the scheme of things, it's not that significant a case. What the, the plaintiff tried in this case was to loop in the payroll company for wage and hour violations under California state law. And the California Supreme Court said, no, that's a little too far. We're not going to go there. We're not going to expand the, the wage and hour laws to include the payroll company. Now, the plaintiff's theory was, hey, uh, why not? They're the ones who process the records. They should be obligated. They have a 
uh, a, a duty or an obligation of the law. And really what they brought up was a third-party beneficiary type of relationship where there'd be shared liability. The court didn't buy it, um, didn't buy it in a unanimous fashion, particularly when you've got a majority of uh, progressive justices on the California Supreme Court. They weren't going to have any of this. They say specifically that the uh, rights of the employee can be protected by going after the direct employer. Now, an interesting side issue, however, would be what if the employer was defunct? What if they were bankrupt? What if they didn't have the assets to satisfy it? And and was that door really left open by the court in Goody Wardenay? And I think the answer to that is probably no. I think that it's just a payroll service providing payroll services. Now, if you went one more step and found that they were doing more than just payroll services, they were actually coming out and auditing and making sure that the work was done and following the law, it might be a different scenario. Or making sure if the records were being kept properly and they, maybe they were screwing that up and that was the basis of the claim, it might, it might be a different outcome here. Right, but you can also see how the plaintiff pursued this case saying that the payroll company must have known that there was something wrong if there were missed meal breaks, if there were overtime that wasn't being paid. Uh, so I think it was an interesting theory. Um, good points, lots of credit for trying, but it just isn't really going to go uh, anywhere specific with that, with that particular case. That takes us to our next case of Vasquez versus San Miguel Produce. And the reason I put the Vasquez case next in order was although not directly the same case as Goody Wardenay, um, I thought it was relatively close. I think it is relatively close, and it kind of goes hand in hand. So the what was the name of the case again, just so you could say it one more time? Goody Wardenay. There we go. Unlike, uh, or much like in Goody Wardenay, uh, this is another shift that we see by the California courts towards less employee-friendly. I don't want to say that Goody Wardenay was necessarily pro-employer. It's not that surprising of a decision. Um, but in Vasquez, maybe it is a lot more pro-employer. Uh, Vas- the case is Vasquez versus San Miguel Produce. It came down January 30th, 2019, so just slightly earlier than the Guni Wardenay case out of the second district court of appeal. The trial court was in Ventura County. Here, uh, the plaintiffs were hired by a company called Employers Depot Incorporated, which is really just a staffing agency. That's what we could call it. And then the staffing agency had assigned these employee, these plaintiff employees to go work for a company called San Miguel Produce. And plaintiffs sued the uh, San Miguel Produce for labor law violations, didn't name their staffing agency. The produce company turned around and cross-complained against the staffing agency, and they claimed that they're an indispensable party and blamed them for the plaintiff's damages here. Um, And then the employer, uh, San Miguel Produce, and the staffing agency, uh, employer Employers Depot, got together and moved to compel arbitration. So let's stop. Before we get into the arbitration issue itself, let's just stop there and look at the relationship we're talking about here. A contracting agency, Employers Depot, or whatever the name of it was here, had actually been hired 
by San Miguel Produce to provide employees. That is not an unusual situation under California law. In fact, I think you're going to see a lot more of these kinds of relationships coming up in the future. So the uh, staffing agency provides the labor, and then the people who are working through the staffing agency, undoubtedly receiving some kind of a paycheck from the staffing agency, go to work for the actual employer. The employer reimburses the staffing agency, the staffing agency writes the checks. And any thought that an employer was going to insulate itself from liability because of this kind of uh, arrangement or this kind of relationship um, is completely blown out of the water in California law, not just by this decision, but by other cases that have so held in, you know, over the course of the last decade or so. Right. There's no way for the employer to get protection here. But what the employer and the staffing agency kind of teamed up to do is move to compel arbitration. The trial court in Ventura County denied the motion and agreed with plaintiffs that the employer cannot compel arbitration because it's not a signatory to the arbitration agreement. Now, there is an arbitration agreement. It's between the staffing agency and the plaintiffs. And keep in mind, the plaintiffs did not sue the staffing agency here. They only sued the produce company, their direct employer. However, uh, then it went up on appeal. Probably because they were trying to avoid the arbitration agreement. That's right. I think that was probably a strategic move on the part of the plaintiffs, a smart move. And, and I think we would have done the same to avoid the arbitration clause. They filed only against the produce company uh, because there was no arbitration agreement. And common sense, I, I think w- neither of us would be surprised here to hear that the trial court said that, then these are the quotes, cannot compel arbitration because it is not a signatory to the arbitration agreement, the uh, produce company. So, and that's when this appellate decision comes out. Yeah, and really this is just another um, case in the long line of cases enforcing arbitration agreements and finding arbitration and finding arbitration enforceable. And I just start to think that the courts are so scared of their own shadow when it comes to enforcing arbitration agreements and what they do with respect to arbitration. And certainly what would have made more sense is that the employer really intended to benefit from arbitration and enforce arbitration is when they have the employee, or in this case, the contract employee, come to work for them, have them sign a separate arbitration agreement, making sure that San Miguel Produce had a direct arbitration agreement. But even though the um, sixth division of the Second District Court of Appeal tends to be extremely progressive and extremely smart justices, uh, no, I'm not related to any of them on that court. They, they really, um, in my opinion, bent over backwards here to find enforceability of arbitration. But assuming that this decision stands, uh, I think it's just another nail in the coffin of um, employees being able to litigate their cases in state court um, or federal court to that extent and being forced and compelled into arbitration and until something changes in Washington I think you're going to continue to see this yeah I think um, they kind of they did bend over backwards and it was, I think it was kind of harsh to find that um, that the produce company and the staffing agency were co-employers and they said this is a quote identity of interest and mutual responsibility for complying with state law governing employers and then somehow use that doctrine to enforce this arbitration agreement that plaintiffs did not sign with the defendant that they were suing. Yeah, they so, didn't sign with San Miguel. That's and right. They signed it with the with the staffing agency. And again, if San Miguel had wanted to benefit from an employment agreement, you could think of two important ways they could have done it. One is to actually make the people sign it when they come to work there. And second is 
add it to the uh, staffing agency's agreement. They could have put their name in there. They could have said this inures to the benefit of anybody you actually go work at. Um, but it, it's really an unfortunate trend, and and I don't see any any end in sight until we actually see Washington start to do something, which is about as likely as Martians landing on the front lawn of the White House right now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it just suggests that these courts are just broadening their view of arbitration agreements and their enforceability. And one of the things to keep in mind that as plaintiffs lawyers, we and we would hope that others out there are active in this arena. And because one of the ways to address this, given how the courts are ruling on it, is through legislation. And, um, you know, we are activists and we're involved in lobbying and things like that. So if you do have situations like this, we'd be interested in hearing about it. And we'd be interested in connecting you with the right types of, you know, lobby organizations, whether it be CAOC or CALA or, or AAJ on the national front to, you know, to demonstrate and tell stories of how harsh some of these results could be. So if you, if you have something like this, reach out to us. We'll connect, connect you with the people, or, or we'll see if there's something we can do about it. Let's move on to our next case, which is Sunrise Financial versus Superior Court. This is a Fourth District Court of Appeal case involving um, what I think is the sometimes confusing, sometimes complex, uh, sometimes difficult to sort of act quickly enough on 170.6 or the peremptory challenge of a judge. You know, California is unique in the fact that it gives us the ability to reject one judge without any explanation um, at any time during your case. And by any time during your case, I mean uh, it depends on the reassignment of a case or, or the, a new judge coming into the case. But what is important is to understand um, the very specific timing. So I don't think this is a particularly um, noteworthy case other than the fact that I think the Court of Appeal was once again trying to make sure that lawyers knew the rules about 170.6. And what happened in this case is there were competing actions pending and there was a motion to consolidate or transfer um, the case. And uh, on February 16, 2016, I guess... 2018. 18. That, that's, right. that's that's more that's more recent than 2016. That's right. right. That's why it was probably published, you know, recently. Thank you, and that that's helpful. Well, in February of 2018, uh, the party filed an opposition to a motion to transfer, and then the court heard it and denied it, I believe. Um, and then after that motion was was heard, considered, and denied. Uh, then and only then did the party actually file its 170.6. And that was deemed not timely. Um, so then they challenged that, took that up on appeal, and the court ultimately held that the 15-day time limit in this situation, and often in most situations, was triggered when they filed that first opposition to the motion to transfer. Because under 170, uh, uh, CCP 170.6, that 15-day time limit is triggered as soon as a party appears in the case. Now, there's no hard-line definition as appeared in the action, because those are the words in um, uh, subdivision A2 of 170.6, but but you know, it's interpreted broadly. And we've seen this at our office, you know, happen on multiple instances where, uh, you know, a party does certain things outside of court, and those might not qualify as appearance in an action. But if you're filing something in court, aside from maybe a motion to quash service or, or something Or showing like that, up at a status conference yeah. or 
uh, filing an answer in a case or filing the initial pleading, you've, you've really got 15 days from that first appearance. And I mean, the bottom line rule is don't mess around with this because uh, the old saying, if you're going to shoot at the king, you better kill the king. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be the guy filing a 170.6 that's untimely. Now the judge knows what you think about him or her, and it was untimely and it was denied. So as soon as you can, file it. And when you find out about a, a reassignment to a judge, start your 15 days then. Uh, when you find out that you're going to have to appear for the first time in a case, start thinking about your 15 days and when it started to run and when it ran. Because courts don't love 170.6. Judges understand it and understand that it's part of the rules, but they don't love it. So if they can find a way to deny it, they're going to find a way to deny yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think this isn't a super you know groundbreaking case or anything too exciting or salacious. It's just a, a friendly reminder um, that you, you should keep these deadlines in mind, and, and they're stricter than you may think. And as long as we're talking about that, one area to remember is that while the 15-day rule generally applies to first appearances in front of a judge or uh, they, upon the date of an assignment, it does not apply at the time of an assignment for a trial. So if you get sent to a master calendar department and you show up in that master calendar department and they, uh, they tell you who the judges you're going to go to for trial that day, it, the rule varies from county to county. And I think that's a, that's a tough rule um, to deal with. And I understand from the administration of justice standpoint, the judges want you to exercise your 170.6 if you're going to do it quickly. Uh, but from our point of view, it's always difficult when you're standing there and you're told you have 15 minutes or 10 minutes or no time. If you're going to use it, you have to use it right now. It really backs you into a corner, and I'd like to see the law change. So next we have a case called Fernandez versus Alexander coming from the Second District Court of Appeals, came down at the end of January 2019. This arises out of a MedMal case that was pending in the Los Angeles Superior Court, um, which was uh, thrown out uh, by the trial court judge after defendant filed an MSJ. And the exclusive issue in this case is the causation element. Now, Brian, do you remember what the elements of negligence are? No. It's duty, breach, causation, and damages. Huh? Duty, well, Brian might have taken the bar exam a couple of years earlier than I did, so he might not remember those, but it's duty, breach, causation, and damages, and this case is about causation exclusively. Um, the plaintiff here had sued an orthopedic surgeon for medical malpractice in connection with treatment for a fractured wrist. Uh, the doctor, the, the plaintiff alleged that the doctor failed to recommend, encourage, or perform a surgery and instead ordered a cast, and that this ultimately increased the severity of the injury to the plaintiff's hand. Um, so defendant filed an MSJ, and, one of, and they ultimately met their prima facie burden of showing that there was, um, that plaintiff failed to show lack of causation or there's no evidence to, to show that there's causation here. Plaintiff ultimately in their opposition uh, was able to oppose it. There was a bunch of triable issues as to the standard of care, as to that second element, the breach element. The trial court said, sure, there is a triable issue and a, and a trier of fact can find that the doctor fell below the standard of care by failing to do these other options like surgery or recommend these other options. However, the declaration that plaintiff supported uh, that's submitted to support the causation element failed to show that 
the the shortcoming or the failure to meet the standard of care actually caused these additional damages to the plaintiffs. Risk. Yeah, I, I I thought this was somewhat of a harsh decision. I mean, they certainly did submit a declaration, and the doctor in his declaration um, makes conclusions that it fell below the standard of care, but. Um, the court seemed to focus on the fact that they were conclusory or too conclusory, right? And it was the lack of um, support for the opinion that the doctor reached that the court focused on. So I really think the lesson to take away from this is, particularly in med mal cases, if you're submitting a physician's declaration uh, in opposition to a summary judgment motion and they've submitted a declaration from their expert, your expert needs to be very very specific about all the bases that he or she is using to reach the conclusions uh, and the opinions, the ultimate opinions. Yeah, I think anytime you're submitting an expert declaration in opposition to an MSJ, your focus is naturally going to be about the standard of care because you have this expert saying, I'm an expert in this area, and the other side failed to meet this standard by doing X, Y, and Z. And it looks like maybe here the plaintiff or plaintiff's counsel or plaintiff's expert failed to address some of those other elements. But I agree that it's kind of harsh. There was an explanation for what happened, but the court court ultimately said that while plaintiff is entitled to quote unquote favorable inferences from the expert declaration, this principle doesn't eliminate the need for quote unquote reasoned explanation for how the defendant's actions yeah. caused and the damage. The court, I, the court, I, yeah, I, I agree. I get it, yeah. you know, and I understand it. But in reading these opinions too, you always wonder how often it is that the justice who writes the opinion spins it in the way most favorable for them. Um, but take it at its face value. If the declaration truly didn't have enough facts supporting it, uh, I understand where they're coming from. They cite a case called Bozzi, um, B-O-Z-Z-I, a court of appeal case, uh, where particularly in a medical malpractice case, there wasn't a competent expert declaration. And they went on to say that when an expert opinion is merely conclusory because unaccompanied by reasonable explanation, um, it's worth no more than the reasons upon which it seeks. So in other words, uh, you got to make sure that your expert declarations are, are complete. You've got to make sure that you're doing this. Uh, it's, it gives the court the basis on which to deny, because I know so many times we get summary judgment motions and we think, well, all we need to do is submit a declaration. All we need to do is submit an expert report, something like that. And that isn't enough anymore. And the courts really do look at these in exacting fashion. You can understand why defense lawyers file summary judge motions, because every now and then they get a win. And let this be more of a less than a shift in the law and more of a cautionary tale, because you... I would bet that from now on, whenever you see these types of issues come up on MSJ, they're going to cite to this case, Fernandez versus Alexander, and say that, oh, the plaintiff's expert declaration isn't enough because it's it's there's no reasoned explanation. There's no it, it's too conclusory. So let, let this be a cautionary tale because you are probably going to see this case come up um, cited in their MSJs and replies even after you submit an expert declaration. <music> 
Okay, our, our penultimate case today is Dachauer versus NBTY. And on its face, this case is not one that probably is going to have a wide-range effect on folks. But because it deals with federal preemption, and because I see federal preemption as one of the most dangerous areas for plaintiff lawyers today um, and our, our clients and the victims, I, I think it's worth noting. So what happened in this case is that the defendant, MBTY, um, produces a product called Nature's Bounty. And they particularly made a vitamin E supplement that they advertised as being um, good for uh, immune function, immune health, heart health, circulatory health, and pretty much anything else that they could they could come up with. And the evidence that came out in the case is that while vitamin E may be good for lots of things, there was no real evidence that in the doses they were offering, it certainly offered any kind of cardiac health or heart health whatsoever. Um, so the lawsuit was brought against the manufacturers based upon California law, California false advertising law, California consumer protection law, and the defendants uh, opposed the case and ultimately attempted to get the case dismissed on the grounds that, well, California law may have false advertising components to it, but what we're really talking about here is the uh, Federal uh, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, known as FDCA, and because that has certain prescriptions for what can and can't be said about a drug and what is and isn't uh, actionable for these kinds of supplements, it, the case has to fail under California law, and the Ninth Circuit agreed. That's right. And uh, under the FDCA, so the FDCA distinguishes between, and this is an interesting uh, thing aside from the opinion in the case, this is just something interesting to know about these types of claims. The FDCA distinguishes between disease claims and structure and function types of claims um, when manufacturers make these claims on their products or on the labeling or as part of the advertising. A structure and function claim describes the role of the ingredient. Um, but they may not, under that type of structure function claim, claim that it mitigates some type of specific disease. And what I found interesting was the FDCA, unlike most consumer laws, the FDCA here provides a little bit more protection, I think, to the consumer than California law does because the FDCA requires that a manufacturer have substantiation for their structure and function claims, but California law does not allow a private plaintiff to demand that type of substantiation for their advertising claims in general. Right. Now, the federal uh, the federal law specifically says that if they made a false claim, such as or they failed to disclose something, such as uh, vitamin E can cause heart attacks and death in certain patients, which sort of harkens to every other ad on television that I see today. Um, that then it would have been actionable for failing to disclose that. They weren't suggesting that that was true. They were just using that as illustrative. But getting back to the core issue here, I thought what was important was the continued expansion of preemption, uh, that fact that we see preemption more and more, FDA and uh, in other areas, it concerns me because um, we don't want to operate in a system where the federal government is telling us what is and isn't actionable or what can and can't be brought as cases 
based upon um, either false advertising law or safety law or consider, for example, if the NTSB approved a particular type of car or safety device in a vehicle, it later turns out to be defective. If everything were preempted as a result of that, we'd see more and more cases being meritorious cases being thrown out simply because they got the good housekeeping stamp of approval from the federal government. That's right. And I, and and not to make this whole episode about disagreeing with the courts, but I found it kind of ridiculous that the court held that um, simply because the uh, vitamin here is not harmful and, and the manufacturer didn't fail to disclose that something's harmful, um, the court agrees that the vitamin is effectively, and this is a quote, simply useless at reducing all-cause mortality, yet they don't find that there's any sort of false advertising here. So as long as they didn't fail to disclose some harmful aspect of the supplement, I guess it doesn't matter that they don't mention that the, that the supplement is useless or that they portray the supplement as useful even though it is useless to improving health. I, I found it kind of silly that the court said, that's fine, that's okay, as long as they're not hiding something dangerous about the drug. Yeah, let's use this opportunity then to round out our cases we disagree with the court episode on and talk about uh, Kohler versus Superior Court. That's right. So Kohler versus Superior Court is a uh, construction defect class action uh, that came down um, from the Second District Court of Appeal in uh, late last year, November of 2018. And it held that, well, let's, I'll talk about the case generally, and then we could talk about the background of the Right to Repair Act. Ultimately, this case held that um, the Right to Repair Act generally precludes class actions for violations of that act's standards for new residential construction. Uh, constructions and said that there is only one narrow exception in which a class action can be brought under the Right to Repair Act, and that's when it's a manufactured product that is a product that is completely manufactured off-site. Um, and if your claims relate to anything beyond the one product that's manufactured off-site, then you cannot bring it as a class action when it comes to uh, new home construction defect type of cases. So um, I think Brian has a lot of experience in this background, so I'll let well, him talk I helped, about Well, I helped write the Right to Repair Act. It was never the intention of the Right to Repair Act to foreclose class actions, unfortunately, because it's a voluminous act and because there's language in there which is patently confusing on its face. The court looked at this and said, hey, we're not going to let class actions proceed on certain types of component parts. And the question that's really an open one is, what exactly does that mean and how far does that go? Here it was faucets against Kohler. You can't pursue class actions on that, which is strange because you could pursue class actions based on Kohler products outside of a home construction issue. Um, but because it was part of the original construction and because you're bringing it as a class, the court said you can't do that. Um, so I, I don't know what component parts means. I don't know what the court meant by this. I do know that this went up to the California Supreme Court for a petition for review and a petition for depublication, both of which were denied. I do know that there's other cases pending right now that are going to wind their way through the courts of appeal um, about the efficacy of this and what it exactly means. But it does signal um, a 
retreat on class actions in California, particularly in the context of construction. Um, interesting political issues there when we're dealing with affordable housing costs in California. Are we looking to protect builders? Are we going to go too far to protect the builders? Uh, are we not doing enough to protect the homeowners, people who put their hard-earned money into purchasing a house? And even the the Court of Appeal here said that they referred to the Right to Repair Act and the how it um, regulates class actions as obtuse was the word that they used. And they ultimately said that because plaintiff's claims here are not limited solely to the incorporation of a defective component, that very also uh, kind of mystical, um, hard to define term, but since their complaint alleged damages beyond just the failure of that device and further damages, because of that, they can no longer proceed with the class action under the uh, Right to Repair Act. And you know, aside from this being a further limitation of consumer rights and class actions kind of becoming more and more difficult to bring, I think maybe another lesson to be learned here is in this environment, maybe if the plaintiff here would have simply alleged that their damages were limited to the failure of that device, they might have been able to proceed. But then, of course, their damages would be really limited. I think in this case, they allege that the failure of this device was causing damages in other parts of their home. And that's what ultimately got it thrown out. So again, this is kind of our, our call to action here is if you come across these types of situations, we'd be interested to hear about it, not because we're Brian's some sort of wizard, even though he thinks he is wizard that might overcome these challenges himself. But we like to work with the organizations out there and other plaintiff's lawyers out there that are battling for consumer rights and battling for our livelihood and what we do for the people in the state. And we can try to bring the uh, bring attention to these types of issues and by working together, be able to do something about it. Right. So thanks for tuning in and listening. We appreciate it. Uh, if you have cases that you'd like to talk to us about, if you want to pick our brains, you want to go over any of these cases, you want to have any disagreements with anything we said, please feel free to reach out to us. We're always happy to talk to you at Cabotech. Uh, we've got a um, number of lawyers here that are working on a bunch of different interesting cases. That's one of the reasons why the uh, cases that we select each week to talk about, I think, are uh, a wide variety of different kinds of interesting topics that people might find uh, helpful to their practice. It's important to know a little bit about these cases. If you want to know more, of course, read them yourself. And it's usually free. And we'll be back with another episode soon. And you can reach us at kbklawyers.com or you can call us up anytime at 213-217-5000. And we'd be happy to hear from you and also just feedback on the podcast in general. Thank you.